Cross of Mark chapter 13. We're in the Olivet Discourse, and this morning we're going to be studying from verse 20 together. So, Mark 13, verse 20. I know that Elder Lez was preaching on something different last week whenever I was absent, so just to remind us of what we've been doing throughout the course of this study of the Olivet Discourse, we're now at week 8 together. And we start off by trying to answer the question of verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And that verse, in, in light of liberal theologians and many of those who want to discredit the word of God and discredit, namely, what Jesus Christ has to say, points to that very verse and says that the eschatology, the, the future things that are to come to pass said by Jesus are false. Even though, we, as we've looked at in the beginning of the Old Discourse, we know that this is in the Wednesday evening. We know that we're coming to the end of Jesus' ministry. He had left the temple. He had walked out through the Temple Mount and went down the valley up in, uh, heading towards the east. And eventually they get to the Mount of Olives and they sit there and the disciples <coughs> ask him, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of the destruction of the temple? And we've looked at how Jesus foretold the destruction of the temple and how it did come to pass in 70 AD. The detail of what Jesus said would happen that not even one stone. We looked at the massive Herodian stones and the sheer size of them was unimaginable to think that they could be completely ransacked, destroyed, and that not even one of them would be on top of another. And yet that's exactly what happened by the hands of the Romans in 70 AD. And we've progressed right throughout this of a discourse, looking at many different aspects of it. And the last time we were together in week seven, if you missed it, you can go online and listen to it. We looked at the tribulation. Now let's read from verse 19, where it says, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if your memory serves you well, remember that we looked at that tribulation with regard to the seven years, the seven bowls and the seven seals and the seven trumpets, and we look at the horrificness of what Revelation depicts to be the tribulation period, and how the tribulation period lasts for some seven years. The beginning of that time will be three, three and a half years of peace, and then ending in three, three and a half years of the most horrific tribulation that has ever and ever will be known to man. And we saw that through those seven seals, seven bowls, and seven trumpets throughout that seven year period. And really what we answered hopefully the last time we were together was a put to rest the viewpoint that is becoming more and more popular of the pederast, which is not a pre-millennious, post-millennious, pre-tribulation, post-tribulation ideology, but rather a pederast believes that everything that you read of in Revelation happened in 70 AD. The fulfillment of Nero being is known as the number 666 and how he was the beast and they go into massive detail trying to answer namely what we're going to get to which is truly I said to you this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So the Pedro's point of view is to say right well to keep people happy with regards to the statement of Jesus let's say that this generation is the generation that stands before Jesus Christ namely for the disciples and the wider amount of people, that generation, and that all the things listed in, in the Olive Discourse will have taken place by 70 AD. 
Now we looked into that exhaustively, hopefully last time, and showed that that cannot be the case because the tribulation of 70 AD, although horrific, as we can read of through the historical writer Josephus, who recorded and chronicalized the, the siege of Jerusalem and how the people were eating each other's children and the horrificness that happened and the, the vast tribulation that happened at that time pales in even coming close to what we read of being depicted in Revelation. So this morning what I hope to look at in light of that tribulation is what that leads us into in verse 20. So we'll read it together. Verse 20, talking just at the heels of the tribulation and never will be in verse 19. Verse 20 says, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now that is hopefully what we're going to look at this morning before we progress anymore. And we just want to pray this morning before we go any further with regard to this verse. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, for the truth of your scripture, Lord, to come and be evident before us by your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, for those of us who may have a problem with this statement that Jesus says, Lord, with regards to election and, and choice, that we would have open ears this morning, Father. That our hearts, Lord, would be guided not by what we feel, but by what we know, Lord. For who we know you are, and knowing how you work. So, Father, I just pray for your hand to rest upon us graciously, Father, in the ability for us to understand this text this morning. And may it glorify your name, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, with regards to this statement, I read it again. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now, the term election, or the term the choice, we understand that with regards to as many different names. Some people like to call it Calvinism. Some people like to call it Reformed theology. Theologians call it um, the doctrines of grace and soteriology. And there's many different names for it. But ultimately, what we're going to hopefully look at this morning, and we've looked at it, I think, a lot over the course of the last number of months, I can't and, don't, and I don't have the time to go into in depth if you're not familiar with election, if you're not familiar with the theology of the fact that we who are in darkness, we who are dead in our trespasses, are unable and incapable of rightly choosing on our own behalf to come to God as Savior. And how it is God who chooses, it is God who reaches out, it is God who elects who will be saved. Now if you want to go in to look at that in more detail, you could go back into the archives of our sermon series, and in particular to the sermon series that we did, which was um, looking at the, the solas, and particularly looking at the uh, sola scriptura. And we went into election and sovereignty in great detail with regard to that this morning. I'm going to touch on it briefly this morning as we look at where we want to go, but ultimately I'd point you to that if you're not satisfied with what I'm giving you this morning with regards to that. But as I said, election, Calvinism, Reformed theology, doctrines of grace, understanding, soteriology, understanding how we are saved by God. Initially, I could go to many different passages. We could turn to John chapter 6, 
in 65 where it says, No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Jesus saying, No one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. We could also look at 2 Thessalonians where it says to give thanks to God who has chosen you from the beginning of salvation. That same wording there as well. Or again in John, we go to John 6.37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Again, there's many different passages that we could point to. But probably the best place to point ourselves to this morning is the book of Romans. To answer what this means to be chosen, to be elected. By God. So if you turn with me please to Romans chapter 9. And as I said, we're briefly going to fly over this this morning, but I think it's important to, to start here in Romans 9. Romans 9, verse 11. Though, with, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. Now again, in the sermon series that I talked about, you can go back to, and we look at that extensively, of what it means here, and why Paul chooses to use the examples of Esau and of Jacob, because you have two people who have the same birth parents, share the same womb, and yet what it says there is that for the order so that God's election may continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What, what shall we say then? Is there injustice in God's part? This is Paul, knowing that people who want to reject election, reject God's sovereign choice, will immediately say, well, that's not fair. How can it be fair for God to say to two babies that are in the womb whom he loves and whom he doesn't whenever they haven't done anything wrong yet? And what Paul is trying to point us to here is the simple fact that it does not depend on our ability to choose God, but rather depends on God's grace in whom he chooses. So it's written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exhortation, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, a man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded said to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use and honorable? And this extensively points continually to the fact that we are undeserved of the grace that God shows us. That in itself, the fact that we are to come to the table, the Lord's table in communion, is meant to be a reminder and a proclamation of the gospel to everyone else, a reminder to us and a proclamation to everyone else, the fact that we are all sinful people that deserve hell. And that yet in God's mercy, 
He reaches out, softens our heart, chooses us and elects us to come to the saving reality and understanding that what Jesus paid on the cross is sufficient for atonement. He changes our inclination. He changes our choice where we decide to choose him, but it is by first him drawing us to himself. Now, for those of you who may be visiting this morning, for those of you who may be new to that, you may say, well, that's not sufficient for me. We could go into it, but we already have as a church. We've already looked at it extensively at midweek, so I point you back to go online, listen to the sermon series where we spend a number of days, a number of weeks looking at these passages and pointing to different passages to back them up. So this morning, whenever we understand what is written in the Gospel of Mark, when it says there, I read to you, don't turn to it, where it says, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he will shorten the days. That to me is self-explanatory for those of us who understand election. That's self-explanatory for those of us who understand how God works. And what I don't want to do this morning is continually go back to who God is, how God works with regards to election. But I'd rather turn to something that I think is more problematic. I was asked it this week, which may have shaped where I want to go this morning. If God chooses, if God is sovereign, if God elects, what happens to babies? This is a question that falls continually. If God chooses whom he will love, chooses whom he will elect, chooses who is to come to him, what happens to babies that are aborted? What happens to those who die in in infancy? What happens to newborn babies? What happens to the very, very young? Can we simply say, well, they are either in heaven or they are in hell, depending on whether or not they were elected? I don't think we can Because Paul continues in this Romans, from Romans 9 to Romans 10, to say this one very important thing. If you even turn to it in Romans 10, verse 13. He says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then, now again, this is a passage that you have to harmonize with what we've just looked at. How are they going to call on the name of the Lord to be saved? Because it is the Lord who changes their inclination. It is the Lord who calls them. It is the Lord who draws them to himself. Therefore, if they, are, if they are called by the Lord, they will call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul puts this in here. To make sure that those of us who come to the understanding of what true election means don't simply sit in this room and go, well, if they're called, if they're elected, they'll come to Christ. Even if you are hypothetically, stepping into the hypothetically, elected by God, if you do not hear the gospel, you're not saved. You cannot be saved. For it is the power of the gospel unto salvation. Their proclamation of the gospel is key in the understanding of who God is in the coming to saving faith. That is why we are commissioned and sent out by Jesus Christ to all the world to preach the good news of the gospel and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is why the good news that has been coined in our era is only good news if it gets there in time. Therefore, it debunks what some people call hyper-Calvinism, which is, well, what is the point of telling friends and neighbors and colleagues and workers and our entire community the gospel? If they're elect, they'll come. 
know if they're elect through the proclamation of the gospel, they will turn and they will accept Christ as their Savior. The proclamation of the gospel is key. We see that if you turn to Romans 1. Back a couple of pages. Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel, the telling the truth of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, telling people about how it is all about Emmanuel, God with us, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the atonement of our sin, it is paramount in people who are chosen and elected to have ears to hear to come to saving faith. Setting that aside, what then do we say about infants? How then scripturally do we answer when it comes to newborn babies, when it comes even to babies who are killed in the womb, babies who are aborted? What do we say then to that? For they haven't heard the gospel. Therefore, are they able to be saved? And we'll be careful here when we go down this road. I am not saying that there is any other way to God apart from Jesus Christ, the truth and the way of the gospel. But what I am saying is that there is evidence, I believe, in Scripture to point to the fact that there is special cases, particularly in Scripture, with regards to babies and children. And I want to point to the fact that Paul shows us in chapter 1, verse 19. Where he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So if any of us are saying, well, how can it be the fact that there is a tribal people that have never heard the gospel, a tribal people who have never heard the gospel, know who God is, how can, we, how can it be just and right for them to stand before a holy God and to be, to be guilty? The answer, Paul says, is because God's attributes are clearly everywhere. The very creation itself points to the creator, points to God, and therefore they are without excuse. So if that's the reason that Paul is using here, that's the citation that Paul is using, bear with me here. He's saying if you are a tribal village chief and you look around and you see the sunrise, you see the autumn rains, you see spring, you see God's creation all around for all to see, points to the fact that there is one God, a creator in whom you should worship. Yes? He says, therefore, if you can see God's attributes in all creation, you have no excuse when you stand before a holy God, having never had the opportunity to hear the gospel. So if that's the evidence, and that is the citation that Paul uses, let's flip it around. If you are a baby in the womb, are you able to perceive and see God's attributes in nature? No. If you are born disabled and handicapped and completely unaware of your surroundings, are you then without excuse? I believe you are. Because if it says there, so they are without excuse, that would mean that the infant, that would mean that the baby, that would mean that the handicapped are with excuse. Because they are unable to perceive God's attributes around them in creation. Is that evidence enough? Maybe not. What I want to do is I want to point right back to the Old Testament. This morning I think we have to be able to answer scripturally to brothers and sisters who we may know who may have lost a child, 
who may have not been in a redemptive state yet and have aborted a child, if somebody who we know has lost a child at a very, very young age, what comfort and what truth, for there only is truth and biblical comfort. How do we point them to truth? Do we simply say, if your child is elect or not elect, they're in heaven or hell? Or do we say, your child is without excuse, or sorry, your child is with excuse, because your newborn baby who died in your womb because of whatever had happened, God's sovereign hand obviously there, that child is with the Lord because that child has a reason and an excuse. They were unable not only to hear the gospel and receive the gospel, they're unable to even see the divine attributes of God, namely his creation all around it. But let's build on that. Because that's where I want to go this morning with regard to this discourse in the lecture. Turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. In fact, we'll turn to 2 Chronicles first, please. 2 Chronicles chapter 8, chapter 28. 2 Chronicles chapter 28 of the Old Testament. I want to look at two people in particular, just while you're finding 2 Chronicles chapter 28. I want to look at Ahaz, and I want to look at Manasseh. Now anybody who doesn't know who Ahaz is, you may know his son, who was Hezekiah. Ahaz was the king of uh, Judea in the Old Testament. He was king from in around 732 BC. He then had a son, Hezekiah, who was king, and Hezekiah had a son who was Manasseh. Ahaz is also listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, King Ahaz wasn't a very good king. We're going to read a little bit about him here in 2 Chronicles, or 2 Chronicles chapter 28, where it says in verse 1, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he, did not, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord and his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals. And he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And burned his sons as an offering. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Where it says there, but he walked in the ways of the kings, in verse 2, he even made metal images of the Baals. The Baals were the god of the Canaanites whom the Lord drove out through the people. And he said he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnon and burnt his sons as an offering. So he sacrificed his own children. He was also the king that brought about that sort of sacrificial worship. They went down into that valley, which is also known by many different names. And he encouraged the people of that time to serve not only Baal, but also the god of fire, which is Malak. Malak, whatever you want to pronounce it. So the people were coming with their, with their children and they were sacrificing them by fire to the god of Baal and the god of Malak. We also read about his grandson, who, who I've named, which was Manasseh. If you turn to Second Chronicles 33, verse 1. It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 50 years in Jerusalem. 
And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. And he erected altars to the Baals and made Asroth and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and used for tune dwelling and ohms and sorcery, and dealt with mediums and with them guys, and did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He too burnt his children. He too brought about again this worship, this giving of children to the fires of Baal and the fires of, of Malak. So we understand through the history of Second Chronicles, if we could spend time here, you had King Ahaz who became an evil king, who turned aside from worshipping Yahweh, worshipping the true God, made altars to burn infants, encouraged the people of God to burn their own children. Then his son Hezekiah turned it around. He came in. We all know a lot about Hezekiah. He brought the people back to once again worshipping rightly. He dismantled the altars. He destroyed the things of Baal. He, he put aside the things that were, that were not righteous before the holy God. And then his son, who we've just read about, Manasseh, turned around and went right back to doing everything that his grandfather had done as uh, King Azaz and basically pointed the people back to sacrificing their children again. So we understand the historical context. Let's turn with me then to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 19. Jeremiah 19, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Go buy a potter's earthware flask, and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests, and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom, at the entry of the potter's gate, and proclaim there the words that I tell you. You shall say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. Because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods, whom they ne- who neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judea have ever known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of innocents. They have filled this place with the blood of innocents. Who's that? That's the sons of King Ahaz. It's the sons of the and daughters of the people of Judea. It is the babies that were slain and offered to false gods. And God's words here are to proclaim this to the people. You have filled this place, not with the blood of infants, but with the blood of innocents. And have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire of burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall be no more called 
Tophath of the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And how basically through the, the Assyrians they came and they destroyed those people through the wrath of the Lord. And that valley was known as the valley of slaughter. It is also to the south of Jerusalem. It's also where we get the word of hell, Ganah, from. And Jesus, whenever he is going through the Gospels and the Gospel of Matthew, points the people to that same valley, where at that stage in Jesus' ear was the place of a rubbish dump. And it was a continual fire all the time going there for the people to go and dispose of their rubbish. And Jesus said, if you want to know what hell's like, that's what it's like there. An ever-ending constant fire of where you will be thrown. So again, Jesus points to that place. What I want to look at this morning is what it says in that verse. If we take what Paul says about how they are with an excuse, and we take what God says himself, that the infants and the babies that not only were born, but were taken in by their parents and sacrificed to a false god, they are innocent. Therefore, I believe through even just these couple of passages, when it comes to the death of infants and comes to the death of babies, we can stand on the fact that they are innocent. Are they born with sin? Yes. We understand that. We are not taking that. But before God, he decrees them innocent. How that works, I don't know. We know that the only way that we can be right and made righteous before a holy God is through the death and atonement of Jesus Christ. Does that transpire and go on to infants? It has to, because that is the only way that people can be right before a holy God. It's what we see right throughout the Old Testament. If someone says, how was Abraham made righteous before a holy God? He was made righteous by faith. Through the atonement of Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ stretches into all eternity forward, and the blood of Christ stretches all the way into the eternity of the past. From the very point of Adam and Eve in the garden, it is the blood of Jesus Christ that atones them and makes them right. Every saint throughout the Old Testament is only made right by the blood of Jesus Christ, and every saint of the New Testament is only made right by the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, an infant or a baby in God's eyes, it seemed to be innocent, to quote his words. So what do we do then for comfort? Is there other places that we can point to? One other place that I would point to, even with regards to infancy, what about children? What about those who, who yet are stepping out of the toddler stage? What about young children? What do we have to say about them? When does it cut off? I don't know when it cuts off. I don't know when, when the age of innocence and the age of understanding happens within children. What I do know is Scripture has to harmonize. Scripture has to build upon Scripture. It's the authority of Scripture that we build upon. So we see it here that babies are called innocent. And we can go to other passages if we have time this morning. But we also see if we turn back to the Gospel of Mark. Just before the all of the discourse, if you turn to chapter 10, verse 13. Here we have Jesus and he says in verse 13 and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was ignited and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter. Jesus says there, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Of God. There is an innocence before our holy God, even though we are born in sin, 
even though the sin attributes that came from the fall are in my children and in the children right throughout the world, there is evidence here in Scripture that, there, that God sees them differently. He also does something that we don't see anywhere else apart from, we see it upon believers, apart from those who are chosen by God and elected by God, is what Jesus then goes on to be said to have done in verse 16. And he being Jesus took the children in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. The blessing of Christ, the blessings of God, the blessings of the Holy Spirit, the blessings of the triune God only ever befall those who are his. Only ever befall those who are his elect. Only ever fall upon those who are chosen or who are prophets or for those who are called to proclaim the fullness and goodness of the gospel. And here again we see Jesus doing it for children. So we could go many different places this morning whenever we come to the understanding of what election means and what it means to be chosen. But I think this morning for us who understand the truths of election, understands the truth of God's sovereign, merciful choice. If you know someone who has lost someone, namely an infant, then you can tell them the truth. Your child was born in sin, yes, but the blood of Jesus Christ in ways that I cannot fathom is sufficient for God to say that that child is innocent. For they have an excuse. They were unable to see the fullness of God throughout creation and therefore they are with our Lord in heaven. What about those who have aborted their children? Who come out of darkness, who have murdered their own kids like we see through the pages of the Old Testament. They may not, yes, have led their child who was born before an altar and worship of the demonic, the worship of the bells, but they did murder their children in their womb. And when they come to the understanding, and they come to the fact that even though that is a massive, horrific sin, the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to take that sin and make them white as snow and set that sin as far as the east is from the west and they stand before God in themselves clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But yet, the devil, the tormentor, the person who comes with falsehood, the person who comes and says, yes, you might be righteous, but where is your son where is the daughter in whom you murdered? There is comfort in the scripture to say to that person, you have hope. Hope in what? That you will be reunited with that child. That that child right now is with the heavenly father because that child is innocent before the Lord. I set aside anybody who dares to come and say, well, if they were chosen or elected or elected or not chosen, that we don't know where they are. We know through evidence of scripture where that child is. And that's what we give people at a point of comfort, the truth of the word. We point them to the word. We stand upon the word. And the word is the evidence for which we have to go forth with. So this morning, I hope that in light of this, all the discourse, yes, it may seem like we've, we've diverted away from what we've been reading. But I think it's important to know in election, we know it, we've looked at it extensively. But to build on that, what about our children? What about those who are still seen to be innocent in the lives of the Lord? I believe firmly. That there is a stage, I don't know when it cuts off, there's a set in scripture, but there is a stage whenever Christ himself says, let the children come to me, for to them belongs the kingdom. And he then lays his hands upon them and blesses them. Praise the Lord for his word. Amen. Election is a heavy, heavy, weighty subject, but I believe we will never 
fully understand who God is or how God works until we understand election. Once we get the root of the sovereignty of God, how all things happen by God, through God, how he still allows sin to happen, how God allowed for those infants to be sacrificed for his ultimate glory, his ultimate good, and to bring about his ultimate work of redemption. We, who are we to question how he works? Who are we to question how he moves his hands? But praise the Lord, we can stand in the truth as he is sovereign, he is controlled, nothing escapes him. It is not that he knows what is going to happen, it is not that he ultimately causes what to happen, he does directly and indirectly by allowing the devil to do his work, allowing those who are sinful to break his commandments. There is God's sovereign commandment and God's elected commandment. In other words, God tells us, Thou shalt not murder. We should not break it, but yet we're able to break it. But praise God, there are certain things that even by our choices we cannot break. We cannot break the truth of Scripture which stands forever in which we build our hope upon that God sees our children in an innocent way by the blood of Christ and the gospel. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning.